You're about to meet one of our last remaining Holocaust survivors, Pinchas Guter. He survived the Warsaw Ghetto and six Nazi concentration camps, but then relived it, standing in a gas chamber beside his family that perished in a virtual reality display. But just before you meet him in this special episode for International Holocaust Remembrance Day, I want to wish you joy. But how can I begin this by wishing you joy, right? Because I can begin this. Because my grandparents survived the Holocaust without which I wouldn't be here. Because my grandparents survived the Holocaust by finding any bits of joy they possibly could to keep going. My grandmother and grandfather were Holocaust survivors, but I still lost them to it. And you know, it's because of them I can speak to you right now. It's because of them I have a podcast. It's because of them I can say, my name is Dahlia. And I am Jewish, and I can still be here tomorrow to say that again. They were strong enough to survive the Holocaust. You're strong enough to learn about it. And thankfully, we still have Pinchas to help you learn. And his remarkable memory, and remarkably, a survivor of six concentration camps. How can he relive all of those horrors? How can he relive horrors like that after his parents were barbarically taken from him at 11 years old? He told me he relives those horrors in hopes that no one else will ever have to live them again. So please, allow me to introduce you to one of our last Holocaust survivors. You did something so extraordinary, I can't fathom it beyond going through the Holocaust. I'm going to describe this scene, and I'm sure you'll remember this. You stood on a platform. Behind you, trees appear to be sort of swaying in the breeze, and you can recall the moment that you and your then 11-year-old twin sister, Sabina, were pulled apart, and you stood inside a virtual reality that was created for the Museum of Jewish Heritage. And there was a gas chamber where your sister and parents perished, and you did this. You relived trauma, Pinchas. Why? Well, I think it is very important, uh, especially in this age where populism, nationalism, and uh, anti-Semitism, xenophobia, homophobia, and all these things are raising their ugly head, to be able, as a witness to the iniquities that happened during the Second World War, uh, to, to talk about it and to make sure that nothing like that you know, you have to learn from the past to, to to make sure that nothing like that will happen again. That it's not that, that what you do something about it. So just let me explain to you. Uh, you know w what actually happened. We, we were part of the upper. 
uprising in the Warsaw Ghetto. My father and uh, my mother and my sister and I, we, you know, my twin sister, we were in a bunker. You know, uh, this was now 19th of April, which started. And for the next three weeks until the first week in May, we were in that bunker. Then they found us. And uh, they took us out, and they took us to a place called, which I didn't know at the time, I thought we were going to Treblinka to die, but they took us to a place called Lublin. And uh, from there we walked to a, a concentration camp, a death camp called Majdanek. And when we arrived there, uh, they separated men from women, children, and um, and my father told me that I must say that I am five years older and I have documentation now from the Nazis, seeing I survived, and they were so uh, concerned about uh, regu regular making sure that everything was correct, that they actually, I've got documents to show that I was born in 1927 instead of five years later. And uh, as soon as we arrived in Majdanek, they started, uh, you know, to separate people. So women with children, women on their own, my mother stood on their own, my sister was separated and she was with the children and I was standing with my father, as I told you, my father said, and he took me with a man. And then I saw my sister running and had long blonde braid, you know, she had a blonde braid, we were all blonde and blue eyed. So she running towards my mother and then she hugged her and I was watching that braid and from that time on, I can't remember anything about my sister. My sister completely disappeared from my memory. I have a photographic memory, and I remember everything and every, every, everything that happened and everybody that I knew from the age of about three. And I can't remember anything about my sister. All I can remember is the braid. And then when they made it virtual reality, and it was premiered at the Tribeca Festival, they used braid as a part of the uh, of the poster and can you imagine the first time when i told this which was about 15 20 years ago i broke down because if can you imagine that you don't have any photographs of your loved ones but at least everybody else i have in my grandparents my great-grandparents and other people that i knew uh, uh, my grand uncles and others i have them in my memory i can see them but I can't see my twin sister, the one that I was born with and lived for 11 years together, and I can't see her. And it's ter terribly heartbreaking not to be able to do that. And then they chased everybody away, and we were standing waiting. We were the last group waiting, the men. I was with my father. And then they chased us into a barrack, and they told us to undress naked. And we were running with our hands in the air. Uh, completely naked. And there was a man with a white coat and a stick and pushing us right, left, right, left, right, left. And I came into a room and there were shower heads. And of course, in the ghetto, we knew that they tried to fool us. And, you know, they said, you're going for this infection, but guest comes out and you die. So I started saying my prayers. But water came out in my case. And then they chased us into another barrack when we were finished with a shower, and they gave us these striped uh, prison clothes, a striped hat, and uh, wooden clogs, and I ran out on a roll call, and I was looking for my father, because I thought that if, if I am alive, 
then my father should be alive, and my mother and my sister were should be alive. And I ran around and ran around, and I couldn't find him. And then I found a man who I knew who used to come in the evening and sleep in our uh, uh, in our little kitchen because mo- most people had no place where to be. They were living in the streets in the Warsaw Ghetto. Things were apocalyptic, an apocalyptic hell in the Warsaw Ghetto. So I asked him, where's my father? Where's my father? And he wouldn't answer. He wouldn't answer. And suddenly he lifted his eyes to heaven. And I didn't realize then immediately what happened, but I knew it was something wrong. And then the next day I found out that both my mother, my sister, and my father were murdered in the guest chamber the day we arrived in Majdanek. Pinchas, to listen to you describe this, I'm a listener, I wasn't there. And it tears me up, and to think, you can't escape this memory, you can't escape any of these memories, you can't regain more memory of your sister. How do you continue to endure these thoughts that are so vividly in your mind? Well, it is terribly important, you know, as a, you know, a human being is, is actually quite a, a, you know, a, a, a strong individual. And it is terribly important for me to be able to have these memories and to be able to impart them to the rest of the world. I think Holocaust survivors, it is a duty for them to go about and to tell the world what happened. What is happening at the moment? We talk about what's happening at the moment. What's happened to the Rohingyas? What's happened in Kosovo? I mean, what's happened in, 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 in all kinds of places? What's happened in Syria? What is going on at the moment, you know, with, with all the different iniquities? And we want it to stop, and that's why we talk about it. We want people to realize that if we don't do something about it, we talk about the past to learn what happened, and then we, do, we want them to, to stop. We want them to know what is going on. We want, them, we want the, the children, the people that we go and talk to and others, to realize that it can happen again, and it shouldn't happen. They must learn. That we must educate them of how much, uh, you know, the resilience of human being is quite important. And I think it's terribly important, despite the fact that I live with the, the Holocaust lives in me all the time. It's not a you can't you say people are you're liberated, yeah you're liberated from what you can't be liberated from those five years of iniquity that I spent under the yoke of the Nazis. But at the same time, I can try and do something about it. And so when I see what is happening, and when I look around what is going on in the world. And I know things are actually much better. In, in Canada, we took in 30,000 Syrian refugees, according to the news that we get. But in 1930s, when the Jews tried to get out of Europe, no country would want to take them. We, were, we, were, we tried very hard. Many, many, many people tried to get out. And all the doors were closed, every country. They made in Evian, they made a, a, a conference about what to do about the, the Jewish problem. And not a country we wanted to, to, to take us. And they, nobody. And they didn't want to help. And nothing. And at the moment, it things have changed.
changed a little bit, but they're not changing fast enough. And there are many, many millions of people that are struggling and suffering. And every day we read about refugees trying to flee iniquities. And, you know, we, we try and do something about it. And Holocaust survivors, basically, they live with something, but they try to do something about it. And, and we do that. It's our duty to do it. And that is why we continue and live with it. We suffer. But that's not the point. The point is that we don't want to impart our suffering to others. We want others to make a place a much better place. We, we want the world to change. We don't want to have, you know, uh, Putin, uh, 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 you know, trying to invade the Ukraine. Why? What for? There's nothing. There's no reason why he should do that. But, you know, but these things are happening and we want it to stop. Please stop. Pinchas, the strength that you have right now to use the horrors that you went through to help others, what you must have learned as a little boy growing yourself into a man like this, a little boy, you and your family are part of the Warsaw Uprising, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, and you just go through unimaginable things, thinking you're in a gas chamber after being ripped away from your family, water falls on you, you run out after this ordeal, looking for your father, looking for your mother, your sister, you find out no one remains. How do you keep going as a little boy who's just found out your entire world has been shattered? Well, you know, as a boy of 11, I was 11 years at the time. And of course, they wrote down that I was 16 years old because my father tried to save me. And he obviously knew more about what was going on. And he must have known that there is a selection for slave labor. So, as I said before, a human being is resilient. But at the same time, you know, a little boy that already suffered three three and a half years almost from the beginning of the Second World War, uh, it, it, it becomes, you know, it, 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 your, your mind becomes a bit numb. You don't really, and first of all, you, 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 haven't, you didn't go to school for, for, for years now. You were in the Warsaw Ghetto where thousands of people were dying on a daily basis, where almost 100,000 people died of disease and others, and there was a huge pit which they dug on the Jewish cemetery, and the Jewish burial society would go around with wooden carts, and this little boy would observe all this running in the streets because I was claustrophobic. I couldn't stand in the little apartment that we were in. So I went around looking for bottles, which my father was making a bit of wine to make a bit of a living. And, you know, so, so the thing is, it, it, it actually, my intellectual capacity it wasn't developed at all. I didn't quite understand what is going on. So I lived in the moment, in the second. And despite the fact that, you know, that this tragedy happened, that I was torn away, some, something happened. And you become like a cocoon. And you kind of warp yourself inside and you, 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 your, your mind becomes numb. 
and you live in the second, in the minute, because they can kill you any time. There were Ukrainian guards that, that would kill you with spades in Majdanek. And while you were working or trying to work, they used human beings as horses to, to, instead of tractors, instead of, you know, big uh, machinery. And we, the, we built roads. And in those roads, they spun you in like horses, and they also beat you while you were running and working and trying to do something. And food was very scarce. So, so the thing is, you live in a kind of, as I said, in 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 in, this, in a kind of simulated trance. You're in a kind of trance. You you're not you you're there and you're not there. So you're not quite conscious about what's going around. You're trying to exist. And, and the existence, it, it, it's the only way to be able to survive because you've got to make yourself invisible. Because immediately you become visible, you become a target. Anybody can shoot you, anybody can kill you, anybody can take you in a selection to the guest chamber because every day there were selections of people they thought couldn't work anymore and sent them to the guest chamber. So you are in a kind of... It, it, um, in, in, as I say, it's difficult to actually explain, but at the time, you didn't, you, you, and even today, my emotions and my feelings have been stilted because, because of, of who just asked me. So when I see a bunch of flowers that my wife enjoys because she's not a Holocaust survivor and she finds the beauty, everything, to me, they are objects and they look nice. But I don't have the emotions and the feeling because they were taken away from the Nazis, took it away from me. And that is, I think, in a way that allowed you to continue your existence because, in a way, you were there, but you were not there. It was an animated kind of existence. I have to say that for someone who just existed through this trance to help himself make it through, it's remarkable to me how... Now it's like you're living like you were there and to continue to live life every day with these memories so strongly imprinted in your mind to live like that, to repeat that trauma over and over. The strength you must have, we could learn so much from you. We're going to continue this conversation with Pinchas Guter, Reliving Trauma, so others, other ethnic minorities, don't have to endure hate, genocide, or another holocaust. You've said to me before, there's more to survival than staying alive. And as you're waiting, hoping for liberation. Even before I asked that, I wonder, did, were you hopeful of a liberation? Did you feel it coming? No, something quite fantastic happened to me. Um, I was fortunately and providentially for me, because I'm a religious person, I believe in, in my father guarding me from heaven and also, uh, you know, uh, Providence guarding and kind of leaving a a, a certain rem, 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 a certain members of the of the Jewish religion and so forth and so on. And I was sent from camp to camp, and I was in these terrible so-called working camps. But actually, these were 
working camps where they worked you to death. You were a slave. The SS sold you to their, for example, I was sold to an organization uh, called Hasak, Hugo Schneider Aktiengesellschaft. The shareholders, the owners were, to, to this day, they, they were then the Dresdner Bank, the, uh, the Deutsche Bank, all these banks that still exist today, they, they actually were shareholders in this, in this company that were making munitions and, uh, and using the slave labor, which the SS sold us to. And in one of the camps in Częstochowa, a place which is a place of pilgrimage, where the Holy Mary, you know, Poland is a very religious country, and the Matka Boska, Częstochowska, is a place of pilgrimage. And there was a camp where we worked with steel, like in Hamilton, and we had to load two wagons a day, and if you didn't, it was very dire for you. But I found a friend of my father who went to the yeshiva, a seminary where they taught people to become rabbis, and he was a rabbi. A rabbi is not a priest, he's a teacher. You know, Jew, in Jews, with people called rabbi, it's, it's a teacher. And uh, he decided that by that time I must be 13 years old, or he thought I was 13 years old, because he was there at my circumcision when I was born in Wuj. And he decided that at midnight, in stealth, he would make me bar mitzvah. So I had my bar mitzvah in a concentration camp at, you know, where they, if they would find you, they would murder you because you weren't allowed to have, you weren't allowed to have any prayers, any, any, anything like that. But I had my bar mitzvah and he blessed me after it was at midnight. You know, I was in a different barrack and he said, you must, you must come to my barrack and somebody from my barrack will go there. So they don't kind of, there's no problem. And at midnight we got up, and in, it, there was a. I, I still remember the uh, moon was shining, and at the light of the moon, he he had a prayer book and he had a prayer shawl, and he put it on me, and we said the prayers, and he blessed me, and he said, "With God's help, you outlive Hitler." And and I just want to tell you how uh, how providence works. After many camps, after being in Buchenwald and being sent by the same Hasak, they always looked for us to, to work in their munitions. So we went to, from Buchenwald, we went to a place called Kolditz, which was in, in, in near Leipzig, in the eastern part of Germany, uh, where they were making bazookas, Panzerfaust. And there, after some trials and tribulations, I actually found also him. He was center. And when I arrived at this camp from, my, from Buchenwald, uh, there was a roll call. And by that time, the officers, uh, the people in charge, the SS, they weren't high officers. So the, 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 the guy in charge was a top sergeant. He, and he said to the to people, when we were in a roll call, when we arrived, he said, ob das kleine Buben, die müssen aussteigen, which means if there are young people here, they must step out. And people never used to volunteer, never used to step out, especially young children, because young children were not good for work and they were murdered immediately. That's what happened in Majdanek, that's what happened in other concentration camps. But for some reason, nobody stepped out, but Pinchas Guter stepped out. And I was standing there and waiting, and he kind of 
organized and sent people to different uh, work groups, and uh, I was standing and waiting and and kind of, uh, uh, you know, shaking and wondering why did I send out and why what hap- what's going to happen to me? And then when everybody was assigned the work or something like that, and if they kind of w- went went away, and I was there standing myself, he took my ha- took my me by hand, took me to the SS kitchen. And he said, you're going to work here. And at the same time, I found that Harav Godel Eisner, the man that made the Bar Mitzvah, came also through different camps. He arrived also there because he was also a slave working for Hasag, for the Hugo Schneider Aktion Gesellschaft. And because I had to be able to eat, because I was working in the kitchen, can you imagine for a young boy for three, four months when I was there in Kolditz, I actually worked in the kitchen. So I, you know, I when I was you know, cutting this and cutting that and making this and making that, eating and then cleaning the huge vats and there was lots of soup and meat and stuff and I would eat it. So I didn't have to take the soup and the and the, and the piece of bread that they gave us when we came back to the... To the to actually, it wasn't a barrack, it was a, a, a kind of... Uh, it was a, like a huge hangar where they built ba- uh, bunks and they used to lock us up at night. And I would give my soup and my piece of bread, which I got in the evening, which they used to give us, to Harav Godel Eisner, the one that made the Bar Mitzvah. And he survived the war. And he, you know, lost his wife and children during the war, went to Israel and remarried, had children, and lived to a very ripe old age to, in, in his 90s. And he became a head of a, of, of a seminary, of a yeshiva, and, and he had a very good life in Israel after the war. And he was the remnant that was left over. That's the, what I'm talking about. The, the God gives, always leaves a remnant, even when he punishes the world, even when he does that, he always leaves a, rem, a remnant. Of, of people that should be able to continue and, and, and bring about a better, something better that should happen. And drop by drop, we are actually improving. I believe I am an optimist. I'm not a pessimist. I don't believe that we, that we are going worse. Despite the fact of all the things that are happening at the moment in the world, I still think that we are doing something about it. Before the war, in 1930s, you know, when Hitler tried to do all the things, all the, all the countries were quiet. At the moment, you know, when things are going awry, then, you know, the world stands up. There is a United Nations, maybe not as effective as it would like it to be, but it's actually doing something. It's, it's coming out, it's shouting, don't do it, don't do it. Pinchas, as you describe everything that you go through, you always find the side of light that goes along with it. And the fact that you're still here, and I know it's, it's often a burden that Holocaust survivors tell me, why did I survive while others didn't? The point at which you were liberated. Tell us about liberation. Um, we were on a death march because when the war was coming towards an end, and sometimes in the beginning of April of 1945, they chased us out of that hole. We were in this hole that they built the bunks. They chased us out. We were about approximately, if I remember correctly, about 1,500 of us working. It were all men, and, you know, we were, we were there for about four months. And they started walking. We started walking. 
And in the beginning, when we left, they gave us uh, a bread and they gave us some uh, cheese and stuff like that for the journey. But we didn't know what was happening. And for the first two, one or two days, we had some food. After that, they didn't give us any food. And by the time we, we came a few weeks later to Theresienstadt, we walked all the way from Germany to Czechoslovakia and Theresienstadt, which was another concentration camp. And when we arrived there, only half of us were left over because from the 1,500 people, half of us died on the way. We drank water from ditches because they wouldn't give us anything to eat or to drink and everybody was scrambling we had leaves anything that was crawling you can't imagine that's why they called it the death marches because people were dying non-stop and they, if you couldn't continue to walk they would shoot you so when we arrived in Theresienstadt we were there for a few weeks and then we were liberated so on the 8th of May the Russians came and they liberated us the Russian army and, of course, we ran out to see what was going on. And we saw, we saw a scene where the Czechs and the Russians were expelling the... Uh, they, they, was, they, they, they were, you know, the, when in, before the war in, in 39 and 38, whenever he took over Czechoslovakia, uh, Hitler did et, ethnic cleansing. He, he chased Czechs out and he brought in Germans to live in Moravia and Bohemia. And so now they were being chased out by the Czechs. And we saw women with little children, with children's prams, you know, crying and being pushed and beaten and all kinds of things happening to them. The Czechs were doing it. And we felt sorry for them, despite the fact that we suffered for five years, you know, in, in, in under the yoke of the Nazis, we, when we saw people, you know, suffering, we actually felt empathy. We felt sorry because we saw human, these were human beings, regardless of who they were. They may have been Germans. We don't know. I don't believe that any of these people were perpetrators. These were women with children, elderly men, walking, crying, and being pushed around and beaten. And for me, I felt sorry for them. Then suddenly, I saw a wagon with two horses in the field on the other side, you know, of the of the road, and and they were standing there. And because my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, was a farmer in Poland before the war, he was a, a religious Jew, but he was a farmer. People think that there were no Jewish farmers in Poland. There were. It, it's just a, 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 it's not true when people think about it. They say that that Jews don't work and Jews don't do this and those Jews don't do that. They they all you know kind of God knows what. And and so I loved horses because I loved uh, I spent a lot of time in on my father in my father in my grandfather's farm. So there uh, I ran towards the horses and I kind of thought play with them. You know, I was still a, a youngster. You know, I was, I was not even 13 years old. So I was kind of snuggling with the horses and waiting and this and that. And I was waiting for the farmer, whoever owned the horses, to come. But I was there for nearly an hour or longer. I don't know how long I spent time. And nobody came. So I went on top of the... I sat on the wagon. I took the whip. I showed the horses. You don't hit the horses. You just show them the whip. And, and I took the reins and I started driving, and they went, I pushed the reins left, and they went left and right, and I was a happy child, and I went to 
Tresenstadt, and then I became, uh, a couple of days later, one of the administrators, Czech and Russian, they asked me, are these horses yours? And I said, yes, they belong to me, because in the meantime, I was going around the farms, getting food for my friends in, in, in Tresenstadt, and, uh, and so forth and so on. And then uh, they decided, they said, would you like to work for us as a contractor? I said, sure. And they gave me a position, and they gave me 5,000 korunas a month as my wages, and I became a contractor for the next three months until such time as we were taken away to go uh, for rehabilitation in England when we flew in, 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 in the, with the Royal Air Force bombers to, to Windermere in the Lake District. I was working for the, for, for, for the Czechs and the Russians, delivering food and actually taking food for the imprisoned SS and others. So, you know, this is the beginning of my life after the war. And everything that happened suddenly disappeared. I was a resilient young man who didn't think about the past, didn't think about the future. Again, I was still living at, in the moment because this is what I learned. This was my school. My school, I, was, I learned... You know, my education was the Nazi education, that you live in the moment. And to this day, I still, you know, continue with all these terrible things that happened to me. You know, I, I used to have terrible nightmares and, and, uh, and, and sufferings and so forth and so on, and they abated because once I started talking about it, I have only been talking about it since 2000. And, and five, when I started taking people to Poland and Germany with the students, Catholic educators and others, and it was cathartic because the empathy that I got from everybody else, I mean, and I'm not talking about Jewish youngsters, I'm talking about students from all the different universities in, in, in the United States and in, in the Catholic universities and others, and the empathy and the, and the emotions that I got from all these human beings it was, was a, 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 was a, a kind of, it was something like a miracle to me. It was uh, the empathy, uh, and it was cathartic. It was very cathartic for me, and it allowed me to kind of breathe again. Uh, but for many, many years, and it was, it was my wife who I married, and uh, thank God we have been married now for 65 years. We just celebrated our anniversary in the beginning of January. We got married on the 6th of January in, in, in England, uh, where, you know, I lived at the time. And, uh, and this is actually how you can continue to exist and be a witness and tell people and try to make the world a better place. I continue talking about we must make the world a better place for humanity, for everybody for people of every religion. Just to tolerate is not enough. You have to accept, accept everybody. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter what religion you belong to. It doesn't matter, you know, where you come from and what you look like and, and who you worship. You must be accepted by others as yourself. And all the different religions teach you, regard every human being as a very precious person as a very precious individual, a, a person that was made in the image of God. And please, please, I spoke at the United Nations several times, and I begged those ambassadors, those very high-positioned people, 
And I said, you know, you've got the power to do something about it. Please do so. What you have, the power that you have, seems to be so much greater than the power of anybody in a position of power because you feel it and you've been through it and you've gotten through it and you're able to transfer these emotions and feelings to other people. What you're doing is extraordinary and I'm sure that your father, your mother, your sister would be so, so proud of you. It's, I, I, I can't, I can't even wrap my head around how you've made it through. But when you speak, you can help so many people become better people and make it through. I, I thank you so much for sharing your story and doing it over and over again. Thank you. I just want to hand you a gift. I want to hand a gift to all the people that are listening to me. And, you know, the Olympic torch is a torch of goodwill among sportsmen that they should, you know, compete uh, religiously and nicely and be nice to one another and compete in a good spirit. I have a torch. My torch has got more than one flame. The Olympic torch has only got one flame, but my torch has got many flames. Amongst them, there is no religious discrimination, no racial discrimination, no xenophobia, no homophobia, and no hate. Hate is pernicious. It's vicious. It brings about vengeance. And I give that to everybody that listens to my story. I give it to them as a gift. And I said, spread these flames of light in the world. I'm giving to you as a gift. And give it to everybody else and make light up the world that the weight should be, you know, a, a, a place of, of, of goodwill, a place of where people can live happily. We all have the same thrives. We all want to have children and grandchildren and live happily. We, you know, no, no, not go about becoming billionaires or anything like that. Most people are working class people like me, and, and they try to, 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 be, to live a, 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 a reasonably happy life. What I would like people to remember just carry that torch with you and hand it over to everybody else and light up the world, that the world should be shining just like the sun is shining and make the world a better place for all humanity. That is a beautiful gift and you keep giving it and it's very clear. And may the memories of your family be a blessing for all. Thank you so much, Pinchas. Thank you, Dalia. Thank you. This episode is dedicated to my late Bubby Rose and my late Sadie Sander. They taught me what it is to live and help live, and I will forever do that in their honor. Never forget. Never again. Live and help live. Live.